You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the BH Photography Podcast. My name is Alan White. Today, John and I will be talking about the newest flagship cameras from Nikon and Canon, the Nikon D5 and Canon EOS 1DX2. Both these cameras represent the best technologies available from Canon and Nikon, but are either of these cameras radical enough to make a trade-up from a current model? While you're listening, feel free to give us your opinions on Twitter at BHPhotoVideo with the hashtag BHPhotoPodcast. Joining us today are Sean Steiner, photographer and writer in our content team. Sean is responsible for writing camera announcements and reviews for the B&H publications. Also joining us is Levy Tenenbaum, one of our ACE sales development trainers. Before we start, it's worth mentioning that while we've had an opportunity to handle both cameras, we haven't had any hands-on shooting experience, nor have we had an opportunity to really eyeball any image files taken with either camera. Today we're talking specs informed speculation. To better set the tone. Levy is dressed today in a bold black and yellow Nikon jumpsuit, and Sean looks equally stunning in his white and red Canon jumpsuit. Did you mention that they're Lycra? <laughs> I was saving that for the end. We're going to start off by having Levy tell us about the new Nikon camera, followed by Sean telling us about Canon's new camera. And then after a brief break, we're going to talk about who these cameras are for, are they worth upgrading to, and the future of DSLRs, if there is, in fact, a future for DSLRs. Uh, Levy, let's start off. Can you tell us about the new Nikon D5, what its features it has, and how is it different from current models of D4S? Right, sure. Well, the the D5, we're, we're actually seeing this in, in both cameras that both the, we're going to be talking about the 1DX shortly, but they're both coming out with this new 20 megapixel type sensor. I'm pretty sure Nikon and Canon are using different sensors based on a ton of other stuff. But pretty much just from the get-go, the when we talk about megapixels, we are looking at a resolution jump from 16 to 20, which on paper may not seem like the largest jump, and some people might be thinking, why we even do this? The one thing where I think that this really comes in handy, specifically for photojournalists or wedding shooters, people who don't have as much time to make the perfect composition while they're shooting, this gives them that little extra resolution if they want to crop. And that off the get-go is something that's going to be very nice. Other things we're looking at is the new XSpeed 5 processor, which is going to be in the Nikon D5 versus the D4S, which has the XSpeed 4. This is also the first time that we're seeing Nikon move to a dedicated AF module, which is allowing them to really boost the speed. We're now we're now seeing the 12 frames per second in with autofocus and 14 frames with mirror lockup. Something like a 30% increase in speed over the previous model, something like that, I believe. What, whatever the uh, official statistic is. But the, the actual numbers, though, this is really nice that they've sped it up. Going along with that speed up, and this is something that Nikon is highly touting, is they officially have 153 autofocus points to help you out. This is really nice. 99 cross type, which means that you have both accesses. And this is going to allow any of those sports shooters who already love their D4S um, to get even better autofocus. They're saying something like it's focusing down to negative 4 EV, so for any of that low light type of stuff, to go along with their brand new ISO, which they're going up to something like expandable to like 4 million. Um, This is, or is it 3 million? I think it's 3 million expandable. 3 3 million in change, yes. Yeah, so I mean, giving you the ability to focus in really, really low light and then 
add the extra ISO, I, I think so far in these first four specs alone, I could see a lot of reasons why pros would make the switch. The, the one thing I do want to point out, I've never had this camera in my hands yet, but from every all the literature and all the photos of the viewfinder that I've seen, um, it looks like even though they have 153 points, only about 55 of them are actual selectable points, and the other ones are all focus assist points, which means that within groupings or if you're tracking a subject, Nikon has a lot of other points in there to help predict where the tracking and the focus needs to move, but those are not actually 153 selectable points like you'd see in some other cameras where you'd have something like 399 selectable points. But you think that the autofocus is the big thing. That's what you were talking about earlier, right? I, I think the autofocus is a very big deal over here. I mean, mm -hmm. this, is, this is what these cameras are made for, is your sports photographers, your photojournalists, these are guys who are relying on their autofocus day in, day out. Um, talking about autofocus, one other very interesting thing that we've seen Nikon do with this camera is give you AF fine-tune, um, which is if you see that your lens is kind of missing focus by a couple millimeters or whatever it is, that in the camera and very easily you're actually able to fine-tune through like a couple just very basic menu pushes is what they're touting um, to actually get your lens to be completely set up. So instead of having to go back and like we used to do where you'd have to measure a chart, go back, tweak it, check it again, check your chart, measure your ruler, okay, I'm still off, and, and tune your focus, now the camera can actually AF fine-tune based on where you focus at. That might be the last 19th century technique that, that we Nikon probably has carried <laughs> over right there. Now we're completely in the 21st century. Yeah. Other really interesting things about this camera, the um, ISO button added to the top right side of the camera is awesome. This is very exciting. Um, they used to have it on the top left side, but now you have a dedicated uh, um, ISO button. I think it was also actually on the bottom as well. But now Where you have is it? it? It's by their... It's on the top right now. Top right, your so trigger your finger. finger. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so that's actually really nice. So now you don't have to put a second hand on the camera body. Um, it was, I, I think it was always on the left. It was either on the bottom, bottom underneath left. the LCD screen. Yeah. It, it, was on top of had, it was an acrobatic no, it was bottom feet. Left. You yeah, had yes. to do some finger manipulation. But the, the idea is now you could all do it all with one hand, especially people who are shooting big lenses or something. They don't have to now take their hand off the lens, leave the viewfinder. They can just start switching, and I think that's going to go a long way. So You think that's indicative of uh, the fact that we use ISO a lot more, or is it just... Uh Simple design change. It, a bit of everything. I mean, they gave you 3.2 million ISO, so right. they want you to use it. Um, I think we find a lot of photographers switching a lot more between ISO rather than modes. Mm -hmm. exactly. So mm -hmm. usually I'd be in aperture priority or shutter priority or manual, and me switching between those modes is not as common as me needing to switch my ISO. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's that's indicative, and I think that that's actually something they're going to do moving forward. I think we're seeing it on the D500, if I remember correctly, and I think that that's going to be in all their high-end cameras from this point forward. And what about touchscreen? Touchscreen is cool. Haven't played with it, but um, from everything that I've seen, this is a full touchscreen, so similar to your iPhone or your or your Android phones where you can actually zoom in, swipe left, right, touch focus. Nikon's autofocus in live view is not the best, um, but it does it does work. They're giving you full touchscreen ability, which I think at this level in a pro camera is something that's very interesting to see here. I think they almost had to because it's one of the first things people comment on when a new camera comes out, whether it has touchscreen or not, whether you need it or not. I think it's a nice feature to have or an option to have. 
but it's something that a lot of people are just expecting because, after all, our phones have it. Why not? Right, but you usually don't see it amongst the pros. You, oh, hear, you hear a lot of times correct. the pros are always worried that, oh, I'm, I'm shooting, I may I may hit the wrong thing, or my nose is going to start touching sure. buttons. They, they get very worried with it. Um, I'm curious to see, and this is something that may be out there, I just I haven't seen in my research yet, whether or not you're able to turn it on or off. I believe you can. What about physical size? What about... Uh... So size, we, we, we've seen a couple things. They've elongated the body a little bit. Um, they've kind of taken away some of the some of the curves. Um, I think it's going to be good for anyone who who's used to these type of cameras. I mean, these are big cameras, so whatever they're trimming or, or, or moving around over here is, is nice. Um, the amount of battery life that they're able to get out of this now is really nice. I think they've upped it by like 700 shots or something. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's up given the high numbers now. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like 3,700 and something, I think, SEPA rated. So, I mean, that's, that is really nice. And, and that's pretty critical for these kind of cameras because if, you, if you're putting out this kind of money for a camera and you're using it the way it's meant to be used, mm -hmm. you like to know that your cameras, your batteries are going to keep up with everything else. We'll touch on this more, but I'm looking here now, 3,780 shots and then the Canon... 1,210 shots. Yeah, the, the, only. <laughs> the, the, the Canon, and I'll let Sean talk about this in a second, but the Canon in its defense does have some other things that are going on processor-wise, which, which Nikon's not doing yet. But a couple things that we've totally missed out, and these are big highlights on this camera, are number one, um, the burst. 200 raw frames per second. Um, not per second, but 200 raw frames burst. So continue shooting at about just under 17 seconds of continuous shooting at high speed. So that is amazing. This is a very important point, though, to make over here, and this is a very big footnote. This is an XQD spec. I don't know what the compact flash spec is. It is, it is. It's not that high. It is slower. They actually showed a graph between the two, and that's one of the big selling points of the new card. Right. So let, let's talk about that for a second because I did not mention that at the beginning. This, this camera is going to come in two actual flavors. We're not going to see the Compact Flash XQD both integrated into the same camera. I can tell you this was a huge issue that we used to always have in the store for customers on the phone that for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the XQD protocol, they just didn't like playing together this Compact Flash and the XQD card. There were almost always issues. So Nikon is now making a very definitive step. You can either buy this in XQD flavor or you can buy this in Compact Flash flavor. Um, I don't think it's just the – we were talking about this earlier right, right when we were setting up. I think this is actually Nikon testing the market and seeing, hey, can we get everyone to switch over to XQD because there's so many advantages that we have here. There's so many things that we can do if we move over to XQD as far as speed and and buffer and stuff like that. I mean, just the rights on this are, these are insane, which brings us to my last point for the moment that I'm going to give Sean some time to talk. Um, <laughs> um, they have. By the way, he hasn't inhaled once since he started speaking. I know he's, he's like sitting there, like he's. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Sean. <laughs> um, they they have put 4K into this camera, which at first everyone's like, "Yeah, yay, 4K!" Um, it's really nice. Nikon's been making a lot of steps. As far as video goes, they, they were some of the first cameras to start doing 60p across all their systems. Um, the two interesting points to me on this camera as far as 4K goes, number one, they did not put in DCI 4K. They've only put in UHD. What that means to the layman is that if you go to film an actual movie on this camera and you want to play it back in theaters, you actually need DCI 4K, which is a little bit bigger. It's 4096, whereas UHD, which is something you'd see on your TV or on the internet is 3,840 pixels. It's, it's slightly smaller. 
speaking of smaller, the camera is not going across the entire um, sensor for 4K. You're actually going to see a one and a half times crop. So it's going to get to the center of the sensor, which, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, that means that you're getting, you know, from the center of the sensor, which is the best part. Also, you have the best light from your lenses in the center, but you are not going to see a full full frame image like we see on some other cameras like the Sony's. And those those are a couple of just important notes. Is this is this a reason why I wouldn't get the camera? Frankly, the person getting this camera is probably already a Nikon shooter. They're already invested in the system. They have a D4S or they have a D3 or they're looking to move into sports shooting from a D800 or a D7200. And if they're making that move, then there's a ton of justifications over here. If you're coming into this where you're saying, oh, I want to shoot films and the D5 shoots 4K, this is the camera to get. I would strongly encourage you to look at other options because that's not what this camera is for. It can do it, but it's not what it's for. I think another thing that's important to point out when it comes to 4K capture is that uh, the Nikon D5 uh, has a maximum clip length of three minutes. Oh, I forgot. Yes. Yes. And, that is... and, and that, that's something that's a big consideration, and I'm sure that Sean's going to tell us all about how long the clip lengths are on the Canon. I want to make one quick asterisk over here. So although it's three minutes, I am willing to bet that Nikon's going to change that because we're seeing on the D500, they are at about 30 minutes in 4K. And also both the D500 and the D5 both have uncompressed HDMI out, which means you could do full 4K out to a recorder in UHD. So that is my one asterisk. Three minutes killer. Um, I don't know who's shooting 4K in three minutes. Points taken. We're gonna take a pause and uh, come back and hear from Sean about the Canon 1DX Mark II. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. Sean, there's a new camera from Canon, as we well know. Give us some information about the new uh, 1DX Mark II and how it, how it compares to previous models, the 1DX. The 1DX was the initial 2012 flagship, but then a year later they followed with the 1DC, which was... Almost the same camera, but it added 4K recording for video productions. Today, with the 1DX Mark II, we see almost a blending of those two cameras. So we have great video, and we also have great stills. We see a new sensor, 20 megapixels, same as the D5. But we also see dual-digit 6-plus processors, which is a major upgrade in terms of speed and processing. The other improvement is we see a bump from 12 FPS with AF and exposure to 14 FPS with AF, and also a bump to 16 FPS in live view, which is huge. And if anybody's shooting sports... What were the processors on the on the previous? Were the dual they were also? The, uh, they used the dual Digic 5. Digic 5, so, okay. So since they use Plus, it's basically three generations ahead now, mm-hmm. Okay. which was a huge boost and probably would have allowed them to do all this extra speed and mm-hmm. image quality on the new new models. In terms of ISO, we don't see the 3 million as on the D5, but the native ISO is up to 51,000, which is actually the same as the previous, but the expanded goes up to 400,000, which is about one stop better. So even in the native range, 
we'll still see about a stop improvement there, is my guess. What's really funny is that we could look at numbers like 400,000 ISO and consider it slouchy. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's a little <laughs> There's something rather perverse. About, I know. Yeah. It's, there's something wrong about that. I mean, Wimps. <laughs> it's like it's only 400,000, but maybe the next one will come through. Right. <laughs> what else we got? <laughs> also, autofocus was a major improvement, not so much in like not more points. It's actually just an improvement on the same system, but it, I think there were very notable improvements in that first you can use f8 lenses which if you're shooting wildlife or sports and you're using a, a very long lens with a teleconverter you can use the autofocus points anywhere on the center so you can go out to the edges instead of just being limited to center point autofocus also we see in video that the dual pixel and movie servo af has come to the 1dx oh, that's good. so that should be a drastic improvement for live view mm -hmm. which makes the 16 fps mode more interesting mm-hmm the other improvement that really helps with speed is that they added a CFAST slot, which is almost like the new CF, although mm -hmm. it's a different type of card. Mm -hmm. But the CFAST card is going to be way faster than CF. And the 1DX Mark II has one CFAST and one CF. So if you still have a bunch of CF cards, don't need to worry. But the benefits of the CFAST card are going to be dramatic. Mm -hmm. This gives us up to, I think, about 170 frames shooting at 14 FPS, wow. which is pretty close to the D5. When you get up to those kind of speeds, unless you have very specific applications, it really is splitting hairs, yeah. honestly. If you if you can't nail that shot in 14 frames a second <laughs> or 12, it, 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 there's another problem. There's another problem going on there. But exactly. talk about the card, the new card a little bit. It's not. It doesn't have pins. It's yeah, more it, stable. What's what It doesn't they, use pins, so like, you don't have to worry about accidentally bending a pin, damaging your camera like that. It uses what's more similar to a hard drive nowadays, a solid-state drive mm -hmm. in connection, which is similar to how XQD actually works too. But the card's a little bigger. I know professionals were whining about SD cards being a little too flimsy and tiny, and they like the CF cards better. Mm -hmm. And I think that in theory, the CFAST 2.0 and future cards can get faster than XQD, although I'm not sure about that. Okay. And what about working with both cards in the camera at the same time? Is there going to be any issues? Can you, you know, just r use the second card as an overload? or, or Do they really? ping pong? Is there a complete fluency between the two of them? You can basically do what you normally can with any two-card camera, which is, like, record both at the same time for mm -hmm. a backup, go raw JPEG in the one, which might actually be the best use in my opinion, but... And sense. But if you do use it as just like an overflow, then you will see a hit in performance when you bump over to the CF card. As a matter of fact, um, we saw the 1DX last week, and when when you have your two cards in, there would be different menu options about what you can do because certain things they will not be able to do due to the performance difference. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Video is another huge aspect for the 1DX Mark II because now you see DCI 4K at 60 FPS which is a first for a DSLR. All the other ones we've seen so far are just 30p, which is pretty standard, but the huge bump here actually puts it into the range of traditional cinema cameras, like their C300 and C100s. Are, there, are these cameras becoming redundant from Canon? Do you, you think there's a little bit too much overlap between all the options they have trying to satisfy everybody, especially with video? Stills are easy, but video, there seems to be a lot of options going on now. In video, it's actually really interesting because the features that they decide to leave out of their cameras as they go lower and lower in the tiers, they very easily distinguish what makes a professional camera compared to like 
a not cinema camera and a stills camera. Because, uh, as I'll get in later, the 1DX Mark II is actually missing some features that I find critical if you're a video shooter, mm -hmm. which would make you want to bump up to a C300 or really? C100. One thing that's really interesting about the video is they added a still grab feature, which is something I've only really seen in more consumer-based models. But I think adding in the dual pixel and movie servo AF, shooting video for stills might be a very viable option with this camera. Even though you'll only get about 8.8 .8 megapixels, it'll still be really good quality. And it's like, at this point, how many megapixels do you really need? They were saying that when the first 6 megapixel camera came out. Yeah. <laughs> a couple things that I think that they missed on the video front include uh, the HDMI out is only in HD. So mm. you can't take advantage of using an external recorder for really? the 4K. Uh, that's yeah. You can still do up to 30 minutes at the uh, impressive 800 megabits per second, which is on par with their cinema cameras. But assuming F it doesn't FYI, overheat. that means that 10 seconds is a gigabyte. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not that compressed, but it's it's high quality, which is good. And then the other thing is it, it doesn't do 10-bit output, which I thought they would do in this camera, but I'm not entirely surprised since it's rare to have on these form factor cameras. But it would have been a very nice feature that would have sealed the deal for many people shooting video. And then the last one is the 1DC had a Canon log feature and their professional cameras have a log feature to try to expand the dynamic range as much as you can. And the 1DX Mark II does not have that feature. So as being almost the perfect camera, I think, it kind of just took a couple missteps or wants to separate itself from the cinema line. And they, they also didn't put um, any kind of like um, assists, like there's no zebras, no focus peaking. Which, you know, they, I think they're kind of being clear that this is not a cinema camera, even though it's capable of it. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk about the future of DSLRs and where we think they're actually going to be going. If you'd like to reach out to us with your questions or comments, email us at podcast at bhphoto.com. What's interesting is that, you know, we just had, in the past year, we have cameras now, we're accepting, you know, 40 and 50 megapixels as the norm now in consumer cameras, yet these cameras are still in the 20 megapixel range, which is something, it, it, we're finding it on both sides, and there's a reason for that to be. I mean, it, it's, it's all justifiable, it's, but it's very interesting that we're in these two worlds. We argue one side, and then we go back and accept the other as normal. I think, I think the thing that you, we have to note over here is because some people are thinking, okay, these are flagship cameras. Why are they only shooting 20 or 16 megapixels? Sure, right. Is there's, I, I want to, off the top of my head, I'm thinking there's probably three factors and I may only hit two at this. But number one is we're trying to give them the utmost performance. Right. So these are cameras that are made to shoot a lot of action, retain focus, and have a tremendous amount of buffer and burst. Mm -hmm. So by not shooting at 50 megapixels, not requiring the camera... Um, to process all that processing energy is, is, is diverted exactly. to more important places. It can go straight into the AF. It can go straight into the buffer. It can go straight into writing to the card. Straight into ISO light gathering. Exactly, size of which the is why you see a camera like the Sony A7S right. is the other high low light, uh, high contender for low light performance, and it's only a 12 megapixel camera. By doing that, they are able to draw in more light. Mm -hmm. They are able to clean up the image a lot more mm -hmm. and push processor performance into those arenas. Also, we've got to think about the type of people who are these cameras being marketed to. 
these are not your studio shooters who are trying to shoot, you know, big, massive billboards or anything like that. This is stuff that's going online to time.com or whatever news websites you're following. Maybe some wedding shooters who want the more robust bodies. But for the most part, these are photojournalists who are pushing out to Sports Illustrated or whatever. And they're they don't need the largest amount of megapixels. It's more important for them to get a clean shot. Are these big cameras going away? I mean, are they the dinosaurs that we won't be using in three years? It's it's a good question. Um, I think it would really like if we if we want to make the argument for mirrorless, I, I think there's a couple things we need to see from mirrorless. Although, yes, Sony just brought out an A6300, which is shooting a ridiculous amount of frames per second with no blackout, but the buffer's still not there. Um, it's yet to remain to see how just how spot on the autofocus is. Can it compare to these kind of cameras? I think it probably can. We're just going to have to see a massive increase in the buffer. Um, the big thing going for these cameras right now, I think, is more is actually their size and their bulk and their ceiling and stuff like that. I think I, I think it's also important to mention that both these cameras are equally well constructed. The integrity of both cameras is phenomenal. They are both weather resistant and they're both meant to be used as daily workhorses. Yeah. So course. it's really it's it's the technical aspects, the specs. Yeah. It's the it's the inner workings. I mean they're 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 both very well sealed. Like like you said, they're both, you know, really rugged. These are these are made to take a beating. Mm-hmm. I think I want to target the point which is are these worth upgrading to? Mm-hmm. Number one, if you're making your money using these kind of cameras, I'd say both of these cameras are definitely worth the upgrade. If this is your your source of living, both these cameras have tremendous advantages offered over the previous generation. That's true. But if you only shoot stills, I think the 1DX Mark II is not as enticing an upgrade as the D5 is for D4 shooters. I um, remember when the D5 came out, I was like, oh, this is amazing compared to the predecessor. When the 1DX came, while we were still like, oh, this is a spectacular camera. We weren't as blown away, but it's still a great camera. So I think the original 1DX is still going to hang on if you don't worry, if you don't care about video. Um, well, the, the F8 across the entire sensor in for long lenses with, with um, extenders, I think for anyone who's doing sports or wildlife, which is a lot of these shooters. Or anybody who wants to put a teleconverter on a kit lens for that matter. Oh, which, which is Alan's <laughs> primary use for teleconverters. There's a good time to note that Alan is a great photographer, especially with Leica and stuff like that. Where did this come from? Um, because you're trying to put teleconverters on kit lenses. So Sean and I are going to have the rest of the conversation. <laughs> um, so as I was saying, so if if someone's shooting the 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 long lens kind of thing and they really want these these long lenses, the 1DX Mark II is for sure a great step up as, as you can get that F8 now across the entire center, which is frankly ridiculous. I mean, that's insane. Mm-hmm. That's true, but it's still. It, I think it's still for a six thousand dollar camera. It's still going to be a hard upgrade unless you're making a lot of money, which a lot of these shooters are. It's, it's just they buy them anyway. It's like yeah, okay, the this new is a professional body. Right. They've right. probably already had the one the originals for about four years, mm-hmm. so it's kind of the time to upgrade. Mm-hmm. And I don't think. Re- Considering the market is professionals, I don't think these types of bodies are going to go away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. But you were saying that there's kind of two things going on here. The The video is the major improvement on this one, but yet it's not improved enough to make a video shooter want to get it. I mean, a, a filmmaker, let's say. Yeah, I'm totally with Sean on that. Well, if you're a filmmaker, if you have like a 1DC, 1DX, and you maybe want to pair down to one body, or you're shooting with a 1DX and you want to like bump up your video game, Moving up to the Mark II just makes sense. It's yeah. going to be way better in video, way better autofocus, and you got the bump in stills quality as well. 
Which which we never mentioned the um, the One DX Mark II has touch autofocus. That's the only time they actually integrated touch into their system. So unlike the Nikon, which you can actually swipe and pan around in playback, um, Canon put touch autofocus for the dual pixel autofocus, which is kind of nice. Yeah, the touch screens on these I think were very well implemented because personally I don't care if a camera has a touch screen because it should be able to be operated without one regardless. A lot of these lower-end cameras rely on the touchscreen for operation, like the original Canon M. Yeah, they get rid of all the buttons. Yeah, which is nice because the camera is super tiny for an APS-C camera. But on a professional camera, you only need it in very specific instances, and many people don't even aren't even comfortable shooting like that. Yeah. All right. Canon has gone with the motion JPEG codec, which is what's allowing them. So it's all I. That means pretty much... Um, in layman's terms, when when you are dealing with video and you're dealing with 24 frames per second, that's larger than the regular burst on these cameras, or or 60 frames per second, which is like three times the the burst on on these cameras. It's a lot of information that your camera's taking off, and essentially every camera company does this. They compress it in some way, shape, or form. What's happening over here is that it's being compressed, but every single frame is still being compressed into an actual JPEG file which is, as Sean pointed out before, how you're able to do things like 4K grab, where you're actually able to grab out an 8-megapixel meg, uh, uh, file. It's really nice. It means that there's a ton more information, though, that the camera's trying to write to the card. It's why they had to go to see fast. It's also why when you're shooting 4K 60p, you're looking at about a gigabyte for every 10 or 15 seconds. Based on everything we've been talking about, does anybody here think that the next-generation camera, the D6 or the D7, or the 1DX Mark III or IV will be predominantly or basically a video camera from which you could extract very high-quality stills as needed. It's a very interesting point, and we've seen it a couple times with the RED cinema cameras because they can shoot RAW. So I don't think we'll see it in the Mark III's or the D6's, but maybe considering that these are four-year cycle cameras, eight years down the road with storage concerns less of an issue, We'll probably have substantially better video frames per second and everything like that. I could see it. I could see it happening. If only in that we get rid of these physical shutters, maybe shrink down the mechanics of the camera, and just the camera's always processing sixty frames of raw files right. every second. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's more likely. Um, when I was in Hollywood when the red ones were first coming out, and every commercial shoot had to have red, and you had to have red, and people didn't realize the amount of processing that went into it. And you can pull files out of it. And then I think W Magazine ran Bruce Willis, and I forgot who on the cover. It was taken from Red, and everyone was very excited about this. And then what they realized was that you could really only use it for still shooting. Like you couldn't have a lot of movement because you were limited by your shutter speed, and you're usually only doubling up the frame rate or whatever it is, meaning that you were shooting at like 148th of a second or 1/120th, which was not enough to do things like freeze action or, or anything like that, which we still don't really see in cinema unless you're going to rent like a Phantom Flex or something like that, which is going to shoot 1,000 frames per second. That's a whole Yeah, but we already have game. technologies, even in point and shoots, where you know you press the shutter button and eight, six or eight frames are grabbed at different oh, ISOs absolutely. and, and combined into an optimum image. So I, I, I think what we're going to see is things like, like Sean was saying more, whereas the camera's just always taking information at whatever settings that you've set it at. I, I do think, and I know there's a lot of traditionally out there who are probably going to hate me for this, I do think the optical viewfinder needs to go. <laughs> and it's not because I don't like it. I do like an optical viewfinder. It's just currently I think it's limiting the camera. Both Canon and Nikon right now are shooting 14 frames and 16 frames. We already saw that on the 1DX, the 12 and 14 frames. I, I kind of feel like we're hitting the end of the mechanical shutter's speed. 
and they've re-engineered these mirror mechanisms. Amazing way you look at how what, what goes on right now. It's no longer just a mirror flipping up and down. There's a whole system oh, yeah. going on in there. So yeah, they probably have reached the limits of how far they can get these mechanical devices to operate. It's yeah. it's interesting. And point. I think and I think by moving away. And listen, I'm not a I'm not an engineer. I'm not a technician. I'm just going by observation. So I may be completely wrong, and that that's fine. But I I do think by moving over to the sensor and just really pushing sensors and sensor technology to where we can go processing them properly and appropriately and getting all that information, we can start doing things like as soon as you push the shutter, it's going to record 30 seconds before and 30 seconds after you release the shutter. How do you think this camera affects the uh, the 5D series and the, the general choice for video shooters? I think it doesn't really affect them. I also think that we'll probably see a Mark IV with ah, took it just me. as capable <laughs> video qualities around Photokina this year. Mm-hmm. 2016 is going to be a big year Mm -hmm. for everybody. So it just makes sense. I think people are going to hold out if they really don't want to spend that much money or they don't need that big of a body. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think Canon definitely has left a lot of place here for a 5D Mark IV. A lot of place. To be the video camera for the filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. And this one, with its increased video capability, will be for the video journalist who wants to shoot his stills and perhaps capture some quality video at the same time? I, I think mean, it'll be interesting. The wedding shooters? We'll or? have to wait for the Mark IV to come out to really tell, but the 1DC and 1DX had better video quality than the 5D Mark III. Mm-hmm. 5D Mark III was still very good, but I still think that they're going to push the 1DX Mark II as their flagship video, photo, everything DSLR, and the 5D series is going to sit just below that but still pretty much be top of the game compared to anything else in the market. Okay. And you think it'll do, you think people will be drawn to it? I mean, of course you say like it's four years since, so you think yeah. that the... Uh, well, drawn to the 5D or the 1D? To the 1D. Yeah. The one, yeah, people will be drawn to it. If, if you need a 1D body, mm-hmm. this is your choice and it's a great option. All right. And about Nikon? Let's go Nikon, back to Nikon. Yeah, Nikon, I think, I think they did a very good job over here. I think that they did a lot of things that they needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they've definitely added a couple of very unique things here, which I, I think for a D4S shooter, like Sean was saying before, there are definitely the one the 1DX Mark II feels like kind of like, okay, this is this is traditional. Okay, right, we're moving forward. It's four years later. Here it's, you know, a couple of improvements. D5 is really bringing a lot of stuff to the table, even for the still shooter where there's just, a ton of stuff over here. The the longer burst. I mean, it's insane. 200, 200 images. I mean, the sequ- the length of sequences that you can do with that mm-hmm. is 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 ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, the ISO, the the autofocus points, just battery a lot of life. Like, yeah, not to battery upset, life. Not to upset any fanboys, mm-hmm. but uh, when we saw the original One DX and the D four D four S, I think the One DX spec wise read a lot better than the D fours in almost every way. Mm-hmm. So now with the D5, they basically were like, well, we got to do something about that. And they went, now they're trading blows. It's like mm-hmm. wins yeah. on this point. On this point, it's pretty much the same. This point, they might be a little lower. Mm-hmm. So the D5, I think, is basically there. We need to catch up and put something out that people want to buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's, it's going to be interesting on the video aspect to compare the um, 4K footage from both cameras. Like I said at the beginning of this, I don't... This is not a Canon or Nikon. I don't know how many people are going to switch to Canon or Nikon from the other. It, the, from these cameras here, I don't think there is any. I'd be amazed if anybody decided they're going to ditch their right. current system to go to either you know, yeah. Canon which, or Nikon. Which we That's, did see with like the D3S. There were, I think, more people who switched over at that time. 
Nobody's going to switch, I don't think. But the interesting thing, when I picked my first DSLR, it was back when the 5D Mark II was the Canon flagship. And since I was going into a video and photo-oriented like mm-hmm. focus, I picked Canon because I knew that they would have better video right. if I wanted to upgrade later on. So considering these are the flagships... I still think if you shoot more video, you're probably going to lean towards Canon more than Nikon. Yeah, and and I'm I'm totally with you there. They have they have the at this point they have a deeper cinema line, and well, they have a cinema line. Yeah, they have video <laughs> period. Yeah. So period, and they have the they have the history. They have a tradition in cinema already dating way back. Um, one thing you mentioned before about the 5D Mark IV and speculation, whenever it does come out, I think the camera it's going to have to compete with is the A7s. And that's going to be curious to see where where Canon goes with that. Yeah, I'm actually a Canon shooter who now has an A7R2 to back up. But Traitor! I, I, still a traditional. <laughs> I still love my optical viewfinder and shoot with the 6D right. relatively often. So it it's still a it's still a hard choice to move over to mirrorless for professional work. The bottom line is that no matter what level of camera you're looking at for either manufacturer, you're getting a great camera that takes great pictures, and. Something that's really, really important for whether you're an enthusiast, a consumer, a professional, which camera feels best in your hands when you look through the finder, what looks best, which of the menus, camera controls are more intuitive and make sense to you. You want a camera that's going to be as transparent as it could possibly be so it's you and your subject and you're taking video and you're taking stills, nothing else. Yeah. Thank you, Levy. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, John, for joining us today. And Jason Tables, our engineer. Give us your opinions on Twitter at BHPhotoVideo with the hashtag BHPhotoPodcast. And please rate and leave a review on iTunes. My name is Alan Weitz. Thank you so much for joining us today. 